So we can start with the 1930s and the New Deal. The New Deal was, New Dealers were not ignoring healthcare. There was a plan or at least a thought that healthcare would be part of the reform packages that FDR had brought forward. However, FDR himself never really prioritized making healthcare a social right. It was talked about later in his presidency a bit more, but it was not something that was as full frontal in his campaign as was uh, old age insurance, pension, social security, and the unemployment insurance. Now, the three pillars of the radicals, the communists and the, the industrial trade unions, were the, these two things, unemployment insurance and uh, and old age insurance, but also health insurance, social health insurance. And during this period, we actually see the growth of a cooperative movement for healthcare. So unions start these mutual funds to pay for health insurance for their workers. Farmers do this as well. However, this is also when we start to see the opposition get organized, the opposition to national health insurance get organized. So the medical establishment, in particular the American Medical Association, um, comes together and they want to squash these cooperative movements because they see them as one step closer toward socialized health care. And so they begin to start advocating against and start lobbying against, and they actually pass, they make it illegal in 26 states to have cooperative health insurance. And instead, what we get is a kind of patchwork system where hospitals take up the insurance program. And this is the birth of Blue Cross. All this happens in the 1930s, right? The shift starts to happen in terms of the political potential for socialized health, health insurance in this country during the war. The war itself created a tremendous amount of medical advances, as wars often do, and it also demonstrated the urgency and the need for care, right? Veterans in particular, but not just veterans, workers and, and a lot of people in, uh, in home life in America were needing care that they were not able to get uh, through lack of insurance, the skyrocketing prices of uh, uh, physicians, and the inability of hospitals, the, well, the ability of hospitals to turn people away, right? There was no right to healthcare in this country, so you could actually turn people away regularly. So at this time, Robert Wagner, who is the sort of architect of the first attempts to really socialize medicine in this country, uh, comes together with these two other folks, Murray and Dingle, and they propose a set of legislation known as the Wagner-Murray-Dingle Bills, and these would be based on the beverage plan in England, not as far-reaching as the NHS, which is what England has now, but a social health insurance scheme, right? A single-payer centralized system, some public hospitals, some public clinics, but mostly uh, a, a single-payer system as we know it today. And this gets proposed, FDR doesn't support it. FDR is not really behind it. So the executive branch isn't behind it, and this is kind of a challenge for, for Wagner because immediately the AMA starts to really ramp up a propaganda uh, operation against socialized medicine. So in 1943, when it's first introduced, and then in 1945, when it's introduced again, the AMA goes whole hog after the idea of socialized medicine. And this is when we start to see the first real lobbying by the medical establishment against socialized medicine. They uh, had tens of thousands of physicians put posters in their private doctor's offices saying keep politics out of healthcare, get rid of socialized medicine. They sponsored hundreds of thousands of letters to the editor to try to really beat back the possibility of social health insurance. Now, the issue, what happens after FDR dies is 
The question of social health insurance is still on the national agenda, and Truman actually takes it up in earnest. And he's the first president to actually campaign for president on the idea of single payer, a single-payer health insurance system. And Truman really goes out and tries to make this the cornerstone of his campaign, but he was somewhat underprepared for how significant the opposition was going to be. And instead of actually having a connection with what was at that time the labor left, uh, which was itself fragmenting and struggling through its own uh, turmoils, instead of having a relationship with the labor left, Truman sort of went out on his own, did some speaking tours, did some press, and got completely clobbered by the AMA and by the now growing um, uh, private insurance industry, which was now actually taking up a significant part of the amount of people who actually receive medical care. And so in, while in 1945, 75% of the American people supported single-payer health care, by um, 1949, only 21% of Americans supported the idea of social medicine. And this was largely due to a really impressive and well-organized campaign on behalf of the opponents of social health insurance. So as the New Dealers slowly trickle out of Congress, and just as unions and millions are sort of pushed into private and expanded health insurance, the kind of vision of a social right to health dies in the, in the early 1950s. The next major period of reform is the entitlements period, and this is the 1960s to the 1980s when we see the birth of Medicare. And so what we start to see is the growth of the hospital as the primary site of care and the rise of private insurance as this major, major uh, part of the economy helps to ensure that a lot of Americans did actually receive medical care in the intervening period, but it also exacerbated the inequalities between those who did not have care. And what was especially clear was that the elderly and the poor were getting completely left behind despite the expansion of private health insurance and despite, to some degree, the, the advances in care that have made it much, much better for most working people. So what Kennedy, in his wisdom, does is he sees this contradiction between the insurance industries, the gap in the fact that they're not covering the elderly in particular, and he recognizes that if he targets that and makes something, what we would now know as Medicare, makes that a part of his program, he can succeed in doing two things, right? One, it's incredibly popular. People think that uh, the elderly should have healthcare. But two, he recognizes he's not going to get the backlash from the insurance industries that he would if he tried to socialize care. And that's primarily because the elderly were not enrolled in private health insurance. And so this was a group that the insurance industry didn't care that much about. So his only real obstacle was, again, the AMA. He had to figure out how to fight back against the AMA. Luckily, at this time, obviously it's the 1960s, there was a real mobilization of working class people in this country. And the civil rights movement, alongside the labor movement, were arm in arm to try to fight for the establishment of Medicare. The AFL-CIO actually creates the first retiree organization in the country that is politically active, and they mobilize hundreds of thousands of their retirees to actually fight for Medicare. So as LBJ, when LBJ waltzes into Congress with, uh, waltzes into Congress and there's a Democratic majority, it wasn't hard to pass Medicare. At the same time, the private insurance industry and the AMA wrote up this little addendum to add on to Medicare called Medicaid. And what Medicaid was, was a separate and unequal system for the poor. And it was meant to be a state distributed system. It was always insufficient and always starved and it was means tested, right? And this is one of the things that sets up the conservative architecture for what health reform, what they think health reform should be. 
So after this period of, of the sort of explosion of, of the first national health insurance system, the establishment of, of Medicare, we already start to see the rolling back of these programs and how effective they can be. So in the next period, which is the sort of inauguration of neoliberalism between 1980 and 1994, we see the great shift in how the, how the public is going to approach something like healthcare. And Reagan makes it very clear that he's going to cut Medicaid and try to starve Medicare as well. The starvation of Medicaid led to a sort of national crisis in emergency rooms around the country because suddenly a new phenomenon of patient dumping was happening where physicians who didn't want to see poor patients would send them to the emergency room. Emergency rooms started to swell with tons of poor patients across the country, in particular in Chicago and New York. This was a real problem. And so the issue of healthcare reform was continually on the table. Reagan's only solution was loosen up the market, allow free competition into health insurance, and we will have, uh, we'll keep costs down and we'll be able to fix the system. He also introduced a new change in Medicare wherein he capped certain payments, right? And he made it all prepaid payments. Now, what this was supposed to do was keep costs down. What it effectively did was allow hospitals to discharge patients sicker and quicker than they would have otherwise. And you actually see the time where people spend in the hospitals shrink from an average of 12 days to an average of seven days just by that one change in Medicare alone because hospitals want to get people out the door so they can get new people in in order to get that money. They're not getting any more money for having them there longer. And so the sicker and quicker shift happens around 1982. But the rise, it's really the rise of the uninsured and the underinsured that challenges this system and starts to make it crumble. The whole conservative vision was that we could fit everybody under a private system and everybody could be fit and covered under private insurance. But already the, the top, the peak of private insurance coverage happens in 1982. And ever since then, the rise of the under and uninsured starts to creep into the public's mindset as this private system cannot hold. And so in the 1990s, Clinton comes in with his attempt at challenging all of this. He uses the rhetoric that we would all find really attractive. You know, he says he wants to make a healthcare a right, not a privilege. He says he's going to create a truly universal system. But really what he introduces is what's called managed competition. And this is the start of what we now see as Obamacare, which is an attempt at maintaining, squaring the circle between private insurance, hospitals, pharmaceuticals, and their profits, and consumers, right? Healthcare consumers, which is what Clinton talked about. Not patients or citizens, but healthcare consumers. So they sort of unroll this 1,400-page, extremely complicated, ridiculous managed care system. And the plan is totally a product of the Washington elite, the medical industry specialists, and some part of the medical establishment that was less hostile to the, the possibility of reforming the, uh, the health insurance system. At this time, the AMA is less a factor, dwarfed as they were by the insurance industry itself and the pharmaceutical companies. And so Clinton doesn't actually feel that he has to really battle against the AMA as much as he does against the insurance industry. The challenge was Clinton's plan included an employer mandate, which the Chamber of Commerce lost their shit over. And they started going really in on uh, why Clinton care was a problem. 
But more than anyone was the rise of the insurance industry as a political force. And this is the period where the insurance industry, instead of the AMA, sort of takes over as the main opposition to healthcare reform. And what we see, very famously, is the ads, the Harry and Louise ads from the 1990s about the government intruding in your healthcare and getting between you and your care. Again, a very effective campaign. The only way for that campaign to have been stopped was the only thing Clinton wasn't willing to do which was to actually provide a more robust plan, a single-payer plan, that would have brought on the unions, the left-wing advocates, and the progressives. All of those were alienated by Clinton Care, and there was really not much excitement about Clinton Care from the left. So in a classic liberal triangulation, trying to find the middle meant that he alienated both the left-wing and the, the right-wing reactionaries went nuts. Um, so the political failure of even a watered-down compromise bill like Clinton Care kind of reminded Democratic politicos that even modest reforms would have to ensure if they were going to win even the slightest reforms, they had to really cozy up with the insurance industry. And this is where we see, we sort of come to the present period with Obamacare, right? And Obama comes up and really boasts about the possibility of, of changing radically the insurance system. He too comes up against the full force of the insurance industry, even though what he was doing gave millions of more, gave the insurance industry millions of more patients and significantly more profits. The idea of the government interfering in their business was so frustrating and so uh, threatening to them that they went whole hog against Obama. Of course, Obama wins, and we actually do get a major shift in uh, health policy in this country. But the crisis for liberalism at this time was the thing that they had promised was totally incapable of doing what they said it was supposed to do, right? Costs are not contained, millions are still uninsured, and we're not able to actually negotiate prices with, uh, with hospitals and pharmaceutical companies. So what we have instead is a state-sponsored uh, insurance scheme that gives away tons to private insurance, but doesn't actually secure the care for workers and consumers. So naturally, I think this led to a frustration, and a frustration that Bernie Sanders was really the only person to pick up on in the 2016 campaign. And what Bernie does is reintroduces the idea of a social right to care, and it becomes wildly popular. I mean, the momentum for Medicare for All is just remarkable. If you know anything about the history of this movement, the speed with which single payer went from completely off the table, never gonna happen, to a real policy design is quite amazing. And so what Bernie does is Bernie basically electrifies the, the uh, electorate with this idea of reintroducing social health, uh, social health insurance as a major part of his policy agenda. So that's it for me. I think that we have a lot that we're up against, and Natalie's going to talk to us about how we win beautifully. <laughs> um, but we have to defeat, I mean, we have to defeat a lot to actually win this. We have to defeat the medical establishment, the insurance industry, big pharma, and the Chamber of Commerce, and a ton of other rich reactionary goons. But what we do have, I think, to offer some optimism is if, we, if Bernie Sanders wins the presidency, we will have the executive branch, and we will have an actual mass constituency for the demand. And the only time we came close to establishing this in the 40s, we didn't have the executive branch. There was a mass constituency, but we didn't have the executive. And so I think if Bernie gets elected, there's actually a real chance, a real road to single-payer healthcare. And I think if we did that, it wouldn't just mean the establishment of good health policy, but it would mean a working class triumphant, defeating one of the most entrenched ruling classes in the world and establishing a piece of real democratic socialism.
All right, uh, thank you, Dustin. That was so thorough and uh, well done. And I'm going to pick up right around uh, where he left off. I think that uh, there are a lot of reasons to be very optimistic about this moment right now. I think that the political position that single-payer Medicare for all is in now uh, is definitely something that I haven't seen uh, in my lifetime that I think, you know, the, the closest moment that you could point to in terms of uh, potential viability for a policy like this uh, was maybe the 1970s. Um, you know, for the first time there are all of these Democratic co-sponsors of the single-payer bills in the House and in the Senate. Uh, and those things all feel really good and that those things wouldn't have happened uh, were it not for um, you know, the mobilization of uh, a large constituency that Dustin mentioned, um, places like Democratic Socialists of America, uh, nurses unions, um, the you know, elements of the labor movement that are starting to uh, become more militant, move leftward. Um, all of that said, uh, I, th I think it's also, it's also very nice, um, the fact that there is uh, more success than there has been in recent years. We do see uh, the, the consensus of the democratic establishment moving left. I think that even the uh, more centrist proposals include uh, a larger amount of public sector involvement in uh, the provision and finance of healthcare than there have been recently, and that none of that would have happened were it not for the constituency calling for Medicare for all. Uh, so I think that all of those things are reason for optimism, uh, but I don't think that I'll have too much trouble convincing the people uh, in this room um, that there's still obviously uh, a lot of work to be done uh, and that a lot of the lip service paid to Medicare for All uh, by a lot of these co-sponsors um, is politically motivated and um, about as shallow as a puddle. I don't think that there is any reason to believe that President Kirsten Gillibrand will have any interest <laughs> in advancing this at all uh, and that we should all be very realistic about that. Uh, I think that when we look at the history of healthcare, uh, healthcare reform in the United States in the 20th century, uh, one of the emergent lessons for me is the fact that uh, a mass constituency is absolutely necessary and that the moment at which we saw the most public expansion, that was Medicare, Medicaid, uh, in the 1960s, however, however much they fell short, and I think that anyone uh, in support of a universal healthcare system would argue that they did fall short, that they didn't achieve uh, all of what we would want to achieve in uh, you know, a just healthcare utopia, but to the degree to which those were the greatest public sector expansions that we can point to in American history, I think that they absolutely happened because of the National uh, Council of Senior Citizens uh, that Dustin discussed. That was the AFL, uh, the AFL-CIO group uh, of senior citizens that were mobilized to canvas, to uh, mobilize in communities, um, to try to get patients on board, to try to endorse candidates, push them to uh, support Medicare, um, publicly financed care for seniors, and that that is the difference. That is the constituency uh, that was able to push this past a finish line, even though uh, the AMA and um, other industry groups tried to push it back with just as much might as they lobbed against these movements in the 1940s. The reason that they lost in the 60s is because there was a boots on the ground movement. And in general, uh, there has not been as significant an amount of that 
uh, in American healthcare reform history as there needs to be uh, to make significant progress moving forward uh, to get anything remotely resembling single-payer Medicare for all. Uh, I think that there are a few reasons for this that for me have really been highlighted uh, in the past year or two is that it's very unclear what exactly mass mobilizing and organizing for a uh, large-scale federal reform on this scale looks like. Um, I, I think that anyone who has been, I'm not sure if you guys have uh, actual organizing experience for this issue or if you've um, observed it, but I think that something that a lot of people have come up against and that I've certainly experienced uh, as an organizer in my own right is that it's challenging um, to figure out what tactics to deploy against these centralized, complicated sites of power um, that you know can't can't be fought in a lot of the ways that we traditionally think about uh, in leftist politics. Um, and so I think that that's worth unpacking and thinking about uh, in a few ways. Um, I think that one, uh, one thing to kind of unpack the politics and difference and think about these things moving forward uh, is the simultaneous existence of state and federal legislation for Medicare for All. Uh, there are a lot of state level campaigns um, agitating for state-level uh, single-payer that they hope will serve as uh, a springboard to you know, prove the concept and show how single-payer might work at uh, the federal level. I think that there are some pluses and minuses to these campaigns. Uh, the minuses being ultimately, as leftists, as socialists, we want national-level reform. Uh, it's not enough to have single-payer in a few states that have amenable political uh, environments for it and to have, um, you know, restrictive uh, right-wing dominated healthcare systems in the other states. That's um, very obviously a problem for many reasons. Uh, and it's, it's a problem because not only is it in, in unjust, but it's also, uh, I think, a denial of the fact that you need uh, amenable political conditions at the federal level to get state level uh, reform because you need um, federal support for uh, accepting the waivers that you would need to put in place uh, and there's also no legal mechanism by which to reallocate dollars for Medicare uh, into a state level system. Um, in a lot of states uh, there is just not enough capital or not enough of a way to keep capital in the state, that the problem of capital flight uh, at a state level is a very, very real threat. Uh, it's also very easy to topple even a robust statewide campaign. Um, you know, if it, if it looks like a smaller state might be getting somewhere with this, they will be flooded with uh, counter messaging that's, you know, a lot easier to afford. Um, obviously, this is a very, very powerful and rich industry. Uh, at any level, but it's a lot easier to fight a plucky single-payer movement in Vermont if yes. you are the pharmaceutical industry at large. Uh, and so you run into problems along those lines, as well as problems with um, you know, providers being in other states. Um, a state like Vermont, 
the politics didn't work out for a number of reasons, but I think a big one is that there aren't providers in, I mean, you know, a lot of people go across state lines to Dartmouth, uh, things like that. Um, all of that said, uh, there are a few states with, uh, I think, somewhat promising state-level campaigns, um, New York and California being chief among them, and that those politics will continue to move. Uh, I think that two years ago, I was much more cynical about state-level efforts at all for all of those reasons, and what made me less cynical about them is that it gives you a reason to knock on people's doors. Uh, when you are campaigning. I think that for a movement for healthcare, uh, especially when you're operating under um, you know, political constraints like the ones that we have now, when we aren't living in uh, a political moment in which anything is going to pass under you know, President Trump or you know, more broadly, a lot of the, uh, you know, under, under any other president, even under Bernie Sanders, there are going to be political constraints uh, in general, and that those can be very stymieing for federal legislation. Um, but for state legislation, a bill that exists, there's, there's, a, there's a structure to you know, approach those things. There are ways to communicate with your state level representatives. There's a way to mobilize uh, a political infrastructure at the local level, which will need to be the political infrastructure that exists uh, at the federal level to begin with. And so I think that those are really uh, valuable, important networks to tap into. And so for that reason, I do support uh, you know, ongoing efforts at the state level with the very obvious understanding uh, that state level reform isn't the goal in and of itself that federal reform is. And I think that that's uh, the understanding under which they're operating to begin with. Um, so another aspect of organizing within the political moment is, uh, you know, another lesson that you can draw from uh, the National uh, Council of Senior Citizens, um, mobilized by the AFL-CIO, is that labor support is a massively uh, somewhat tapped resource uh, in this fight, let's say. Certainly, uh, some of the leaders, um, you know, the nurses' unions, I would argue, have been probably the single most important political constituency behind single-payer healthcare reform in recent years, uh, and that they have been able to change the conversation to advance things. I think it's also important that a lot of the uh, highest-profile strikes of the past couple of years have all hinged on healthcare. Um, the fact that you know unions traditionally. Uh, have not necessarily agitated for single payer, even though it's in their material interest, even though um, you know, we, we keep seeing contract negotiations disintegrate over healthcare issues as it gets more and more expensive, and that their uh, relative privilege uh, compared to other workers, uh, as it stood in the past, is starting to change uh, and starting to be challenged. Um, I think that you also have a political context wherein uh, labor unions are um, in a position where for survival they're very uh, tethered to the democratic establishment and are unwilling to rock the boat and that the degree to which that has changed in certain unions tends to be because of uh, you know, leftward visionary leadership in the case of uh, the nurses union. I think that that moved left because of Roseanne DeMauro. Uh, in the case of some of the teachers' unions, um, if 
you've read Micah's book, you know about uh, the fact that there are rank and file movements to uh, push unions leftward, and that I think that some of those are the ones that have embraced healthcare as an organizing principle as well. Uh, I think that historically having uh, a strong labor contingent in this fight is incredibly important uh, and will be important moving forward. Uh, and that as socialists working you know, inside of labor movements or uh, in solidarity with them, that's something that we'll have to think about and tap into. Uh, and along those same lines, the third element of uh, the politics as they currently stand, um, working in solidarity with labor movements, uh, but other liberatory movements as well. I think that uh, the, the final thing that I think is important, looking at the history of not only healthcare reform in the 20th century, but uh, you know the two major movements of, or the two major instances of, uh, you know, leftward reform packages, uh, robust ones anyway, the the New Deal and. Uh, the Great Society in the mid-60s. Uh, I don't think it's any accident that those happened in big chunks as opposed to you know, one-offs. Mm -hmm. And I think that they happened in big chunks, which is the technical term for it. Uh, <laughs> they, they happened that way uh, because when you have movements working in tandem uh, to basically change the political context and advance a set of things at once, I think that it's more politically possible uh, to do that in uh, you know, bursts as opposed to uh, small trickles. And so I think that that does challenge the consensus that, um, you know, I think that, I think that it's a very common uh, neoliberal wonk line that you have to you know, choose your political priorities, you get to do one thing, you can't focus on all of the things. And I think that uh, history, particularly of leftist reforms, uh, really challenges that notion. Uh, and so I think that in terms of what this means for single-payer reform, I think that uh, other liberatory movements very obviously encapsulate healthcare reform uh, in you know, a way that's not easy or not difficult to understand. Um, you know, with labor, uh, the fact that their collective bargaining is constantly dominated by healthcare discussions just to keep what they have, and that that's what breaks down uh, their ability to negotiate with their boss, they have a very clear material interest in single payer and taking that out of uh, the question so that they can talk about wages and other things. Um, I think that you know the Green New Deal includes single payer and a demand for Medicare for all for a reason, and that we can talk about you know geographical disparities in terms of uh, the way that climate change impacts people, uh, you know the poor pe poor people, people in the global south, uh, people relegated to poorer neighborhoods in the United States because of our history of housing and economic discrimination. That all of those places tend to be the least healthy, and that that has a lot to do with the fact that uh, wealth and the building of it, uh, you know, obviously has a physical impact on people's health in terms of the externalities of production, uh, that people can talk about those things. Uh, the most polluted areas are also the poorest, et cetera. Those can be ameliorated, at least partially, by Medicare for all. Uh, it's also a feminist demand. Um, women are disproportionately insured as dependents of men, uh, which is, you know, people talk about job lock, they don't talk about relationship lock quite as much, uh, but that's a very real component of our healthcare system. Uh, women also use more care because of their reproductive lives. Um, biologically, uh, cis women 
use more healthcare than men do when they're young and healthy. Uh, and so they have more encounters with the healthcare system, higher out-of-pocket costs, tend to get paid less money and you know, carry the burdens of social reproduction, all of those things. Uh, it's also very obviously a civil rights issue, uh, a racial justice issue, uh, in that you do see inequalities between uh, black and white health outcomes reduced at the passage of Medicare and the fact that it desegregated hospitals. Um, and so I think that you know, moving forward, looking at healthcare and really centering its intersections with other movements is going to be critical in terms of building the mass constituency that we need uh, that isn't just you know, people yelling into a void, that, that makes um, moves forward and has political salience. So uh, I hope that we're all able to work in solidarity and build those things. Thank you. Uh, thank you. It was great historical overview and Natalie uh, discussing all the various political dynamics that are going on and that we have to be aware of and take into account as we work to be successful and to achieve what we're trying to achieve. So what I'm going to speak about a little more is perhaps a little more forward thinking in terms of imagining how a system like what we are fighting for would work. Um, and specifically, I want to focus a little bit on, um, ironically, how what we need to fight for differs in some ways from Medicare, even though what we're fighting for is something that we call Medicare for all. And I I'm not arguing for changing the framing or not calling it Medicare for all. I think that works fine in terms of the rhetoric. I think it is a familiar system. Um, as Dustin said, it does have its roots in a vision of universalism. It did cover everybody 65 and older and it wasn't means tested. There are real core features of Medicare that, that we are sort of carrying forward. And, and the architects of Medicare were the same ones who were the architects of the national health insurance bills previously. Um, and they also, once it was achieved, they wanted to go move forward and, and imagine it be, a re-envision it as a universal system. So, so I think we can recognize the sort of historical role that Medicare has very much played in terms of a, um, a predecessor for what we're trying to fight for. I think we can use it as a framing, um, as we do in terms of the Medicare for All um, you know, movement and the bill, both bills in the House and the Senate are called Medicare for All. But I want to talk a little bit about how we have to think beyond Medicare for All insofar as Medicare is currently constituted. Now, to some, some of this is probably pretty familiar to many people. And you know, for, for a while, I, I think this isn't happening as much anymore, but it's sort of the early days when, when Medicare when, when sort of, you know, in 2016, when single payer was kind of getting back out there and was, and was rising in prominence, you'd often feel these questions from report. You'd hear these reporters write things um, like, you know, these people are saying, calling it Medicare for all, but, uh, you know, Medicare has copays and deductibles and, and doesn't cover dental care, dentist care. So why are they, you know, this isn't Medicare for all. And, you know, we would sort of have to respond, you know, yes, 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 we know. Uh, what we're talking about is improved Medicare for all. You know, this isn't difficult. Uh, but I think it is important to keep in mind mind that, um, and I think sometimes there's bad faith articulations of, of this. Um, you know, you said there was a quote from Pelosi in, in Rolling Stone, I think, last month, where she claimed that, um, well, actually, the Affordable Care Act, you know, is better than, uh, is actually, you know, goes beyond Medicare for all because, you know, it covers, um, it has lifetime annual limits, and Medicare currently doesn't as constituted. And, and 
we know that this is, you know, I, I, either it is very being very poorly informed or being purposefully um, being purposefully misinformed. Um, so obviously, you know, one of the key areas in which um, what we're talking about single payer has to move beyond Medicare for all is an obvious one that I think most people are familiar with, and that's the question of cost sharing, copayments, deductibles, and coinsurance. And it is important to keep that in mind because you do see this in organizing that people who are currently receiving Medicare or on Medicare have out-of-pocket payments for drugs in the thousands of dollars. Um, so when you're, when, you're, when you're talking about the evils of private health insurance, you're, or you're reading these stories about people um, you know, going without needed medications because of cost, or not filling their prescription for their multiple sclerosis drugs, or their emphysema drugs, or their, or their cancer chemotherapy, you know, you'll sometimes like, read these articles, and it turns out the person's on Medicare, right? So just it's an important thing to keep in mind, and it's, nothing, it's not a particularly novel observation. Um, and, and you know, so where do things stand in that regard in terms of the bills and the House and the Senate? Well, overall, they stay, they're, they're in a pretty good, pretty good place. Um, the House bill, which is a new House bill, 1384, which was launched in February, um, lead co-sponsor Pramila Jayapal, ha doesn't have any cost sharing at all. Um, for drugs, for long-term care, for inpatient, outpatient care, et cetera. There's no out-of-pocket payments. Um, <clears throat> and the Sanders bill all is pretty close. Uh, it falls short in one, res in one respect in that there um, is co-payments for prescription drugs, and there's like a lot of caveats, like they can't be generic, and they ha can't be for preventive reasons, uh, and they are capped at $200 a year, and so it's very minor, but it's important to keep in mind that you know, as we're moving forward, there may be efforts to kind of add more cost-sharing into bills like this in order to make it, you know, to maybe increase the number of co-sponsors, and we really need to push back against that, because once you make this um, into a program that doesn't give better coverage to everybody, then the arguments you're currently hearing about, well, actually, you know, some people like their private health insurance that are total garbage and, and complete and utter nonsense. At some point, it could be true that for some people, what we're proposing is worse than what they're currently having if we were to sort of move in the direction of more cost sharing, more co-payments, more deductible. So it's important to keep in mind that that aspect of what we're fighting for, we, we stand by. Uh, and I think we should, you know, push against the, copay, the drug copay provision. Uh, uh, frankly, I don't even know how you divide a preventive drug from a non-preventive drug. Like, I don't even know what that really means in practice. Uh, if you're taking a drug for diabetes, uh, is it preventive because it's preventing you from having a heart attack, but or is it treatment because it's a known diagnosis? And actually, the IRS has rules about this because under high, their high deductible health plan tax rules, um, something only counts as preventive if it's trying to prevent a disease, not if it's for an established disease, which you know doesn't really make any sense. Anyway, so separate issue, but um, so that's that's something I think that we can I make an easy case for, and we all agree. Uh, but I want to go a little step further into what seems like wonky terrain, but I think. I think it's actually important that we all keep, are aware of, which is that the way Medicare pays for care currently has some serious disadvantages in terms of taking the system and moving it away from a, from a profit-oriented uh, motive. So Dustin spoke a little bit about how in the 1980s, um, the way Medicare paid hospitals changed. And basically, before the 1980s, hospitals loved it because um, they could more or less charge Medicare for like customary charges, which more, more or less meant it was, they, they were flush with cash. Uh, in response to that, they just built and built and built. And so there was a huge expansion of hospital capacity in the 1970s, um, not necessarily where it needed to go, but kind of you know whoever was where the money was coming. And in the 1980s, um, they stopped paying hospitals based on their costs, and they started paying, paying them 
based on diagnoses, what were called diagnosis-related groups. And I promise I won't talk too much about it, other than it's basically a lump sum for a particular diagnosis, and then you get adjustments based on how sick the patient is. And so, as Dustin said, that, that it incentivizes hospitals to sort of um, you know, discharge patients sooner um, and to sort of focus on volume instead of on uh, necessarily quality or, or it, it had problematic consequences. And in particular, um, lots of patients got discharged sooner, but they didn't get discharged sooner to the home. They often would have discharged sooner and went out of the nursing home, which isn't necessarily a, a better outcome. So how do we stand now and how would these bills change? Well, the reason why the current system is not working is as, is as follows. Hospitals currently, and this would be true under a Medicare for all system that just, you know, use the exact same way that medical, Medicare pays hospitals now, um, hospitals are still incentivized to turn a profit, even if they're being paid from the, by the government. And why is that? Well, a couple of reasons, uh, even if they're nonprofit. So first of all, they need to, if you're a hospital, uh, you need to, if you want to keep attracting patients and you, want to, and you want to be the hospital that people want to go to, you need to build new facilities, build new wings, get the latest inf infrastructure, get, get the latest technology. So there is built into this system a drive for profit because in order to buy new stuff, to build new facilities, to expand, to upgrade, to paint your wall, you know, to do big capital expenditures, you need revenue that's greater than your operating costs. So even if we move to a sort of Medicare for all system, if we keep paying hospitals in the way in which they get per patient billing and they um, bill for each diagnosis related group and they bill for each hospitalization then, and they are allowed to use their profits to expand, then what's going to happen is, is that the status quo in many ways will persevere. Hospitals will still try to turn a profit. They will still need to turn a profit to survive because they'll need to be able to fund their capital expenditures. That means that new capital hospital capital gets built not necessarily where health needs are highest, but where profits are highest. And then you have a perseverance of healthcare inequality because um, places that need more care aren't necessarily getting it. The places that are getting more care are just those where profits are highest. Uh, this is a real problem, and it's not fixed just by having the money come from the government alone if we don't change the way we pay hospitals. So how do we break this cycle? Um, and, I, and I'll say just as a quick caveat, this problem of more and more infrastructure going not to where it's needed, but to where profits are highest, has been described for a long time. And it's worth knowing uh, a, a, a guy who put a name to it named Julian Tudor Hart, who is a uh, general practitioner who just recently died this year, a longtime socialist. Um, in the uh, Socialist Medical Association in Britain, and I think he was around during the creation of the NHS, uh, who sort of revolutionized um, primary care um, model where you kind of go out to the patients and actually find them in the community and not just sit back and wait for them to come to you. Anyway, he labeled this the inverse care law. Basically, the idea that um, the amount of healthcare that's available in a place is inversely proportional to the needs there. And it's obviously not that simple, but there is some truth to it. And you see it now with the rash of hospitals closing in these rural areas, and people can't even um, deliver, um, you know, uh, uh, mater maternity services are not available in broad swaths of the country, and there's, there's, you know, it's a contributing factor to some of the worsening outcomes for, um, uh, for childbirth. Um, so, how do we move beyond that? Well, we need to. 
think about new ways to pay hospitals. And this is an area in which there's a difference between the House and the Senate bill that I think is worth uh, being aware of. Uh, what, what we in Physicians for National Health Program think we need to do is, is move in, a, in, in the Canadian direction. And basically, the way that works is hospitals, rather than billing for each individual patient that comes through their door and being allowed to keep their profits and then use those profits to reinvest in new facilities, hospitals are paid a lump sum called a global budget that covers all their operating expenditures, and they can't keep any of that money. There are no profits. There, are no, there is no revenue that you get to keep. You use that money for health care, and if you don't use it for health care, then you then, it, then you don't get it. Then it goes back to the government. And then a separate fund is used for new capital expenditures, new infrastructure, directed not to where profits happen to be coming in, but to where those facilities are needed. So again, that, it's, maybe it sounds like it's veering into wonky terrain, but I think it's important to keep that in mind. And that is an area that I think, you know, um, I mean, there's no underestimating or overstating the degree to which Sanders has moved this issue forward and he's you know by obviously the one in among the, the, the candidates who's the most vocal supporter of Medicare for all but I think we should push um, in future versions of his bill his bill to include this because currently right now his bill basically replicates current Medicare payment systems um, and it could be improved by taking a step away from profit-oriented payment systems towards global budgets and separate separate capital expenditures um, we, we, we're about an hour in. Yeah, sure. Because I could talk forever, but everyone would fall, everyone would fall asleep, uh, in addition to not being allowed to have time for questions. So maybe I should just wrap, maybe I should just wrap up my portion to give us some time to talk. Uh, so, long story short, I agree with what's been said. We are at a historical juncture in terms of, um, um, the amount of support that we have now. This, I think the last time from a historical perspective that there was this much possibility in actually winning was the 1970s. Uh, and that's in some ways exciting. It also though is a little sobering because they failed in the 1970s, right? Um, and there was a, people, if you read the newspapers from back then, people assumed they were gonna win. They were confident. It was like only a matter of time before national health insurance would be achieved. And they didn't because of reasons that go beyond this discussion, but you know, the whole neoliberal turn and Reaganism and everything that came after. So it's an exciting moment. Um, it's, nothing's guaranteed. I do agree that we can win this. Um, I do think we also need to pay attention to some of these details and some of these ways in which it's not just the benefits that we guarantee. We have to take the profit motive out of the payment mechanisms themselves. Um, and so I'll, I'll leave it at that. Thank you. Uh, that sounds like a slippery slope. You're like taking the profit motive out of healthcare. Who knows where else you're going to stop after that? <laughs> sounds socialist to me. Um, so we, I have some questions that I wanted to ask the panel. Uh, we, you know, I don't think the discussion is going to get out of hand here with our small crowd. So people can feel free to chime in. Who's um, keeping staff? Yeah. Uh, so one thing I wanted to ask about is that both uh, Dustin and Natalie talked about. The, the crucial role of the, the labor movement in passing uh, Medicare for All, and Dustin talked about what past reform efforts have looked like that maybe had decent intentions but didn't have the labor movement as a key player in making that happen. And uh, Natalie, you raised the question of what, what should mass mobilization for Medicare for All look like. Um, it, there are gr growing numbers of unions, it seems like, that are getting on board for this, but it's still relatively small numbers and it's often been uh, beyond like you know National Nurses United or some of the other more particularly hardcore pro Medicare for all unions uh, kind of paper support right um, 
what do you, I mean, now that you raised the question, you didn't have an answer to it, but I will ask it as a question again. What, how can you, we scale up that kind of uh, support and pressure from the labor movement for Medicare for all? Um, I'm thinking, for example, you know, the, people talk about the West Virginia teacher strike as this very exciting thing because it was a strike in, in a red state, and obviously it was, but you know, that was a strike that was over principally healthcare. We didn't really talk about it that much as being a strike over healthcare. Could we see more stuff like that? Is there ways that unions could very deliberately make their, you know, like say very publicly, the reason we are on strike right now is because of our healthcare uh, claims. If we had a Medicare for all system, we wouldn't have to be going on strike right now. Or what are the other uh, thoughts that you all might have about how labor could advance that discussion in ways that currently aren't being advanced? Um. Would you like to start, or should I start? Or? You can start. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think that it's it's definitely a complicated question, uh, and that the support. I think most. I would I would guess, uh, or at least a strong plurality of labor unions are in technical support of Medicare for all on paper. Um, I think that the AFL CIO endorsed it in like 2009. A lot of unions are technically in support, but that that support hasn't translated into uh, anything concrete in the vast majority of cases. Uh, and I think, you know, what I was saying about the connection of uh, different liberatory movements, just different aspects of the left working in solidarity with the healthcare <coughs> movement to advance it definitely applies here because I think, um, I've, I've written about this for uh, a few different outlets, and I think that my take is that the reason that they haven't is primarily because the labor movement is currently weak and they, they basically have you know picked the democrats as the ones who are going to be in better care of their interests and you know they they work to support the democrats and be in alliance with them to uh you know hope that that will translate into uh, some preferential treatment eventually, and that a stronger, more militant, growing labor movement wouldn't have those same constraints. Uh, and so, you know, growing the labor movement and strengthening it more generally in a way that the left would want, I think, is one way to allow it to be uh, more militant or to at least be able to confront the Democratic Party in a way that it currently does not. Um, I also think that there's a strong potential, I think, something that I haven't seen, and this isn't, you know, on the late, like when the labor movement's on strike, they are articulating their demands in uh, a, a very specific way. I think that, you know, people working in solidarity with them, um, you know, who show up to picket lines, who um, ally with them, I think that they can do some of that rhetorical work in, you know, connecting these things and making them about healthcare and, you know, turning out healthcare advocates to a picket line. I don't, I don't necessarily see that a lot. You know, like the, the people who are knocking on doors for a Medicare for all bill should absolutely be the first people on the line at the stop and shop too. Um, you know, giving that, giving that element to it and that, um, you know, I hope to see more of that. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I actually do think it's a real puzzle, Micah. Um, and you, even as a student of labor as yourself, many people don't realize the number one cause of strikes and lockouts in this country is healthcare. The number one cause of contract negotiations breaking down is healthcare. Every time, everywhere, you see unions go out, healthcare is the issue. It is almost universally true. So it's not that their members aren't saying this is a problem. Everyone wants it off the bargaining table. Everybody wants to get rid of it and say, take it away, government take it, I don't want to have to bargain over this anymore. 
So it is a real puzzle as to why we haven't seen the level of mobilization that we saw in the 70s, um, and that even that we saw around, you know, in the, well, obviously in the 40s, but even around Medicare, like the amount of energy that the unions put into establishing Medicare was actually phenomenal. And that was, again, a class fight in the unions where the unions realized themselves, okay, we're paying, we're bargaining for our retirees' health care. Eventually, this is going to eat into our younger workers' health care. So they wanted it off the table then. So it's a real puzzle as to why we haven't seen more of a mobilization on behalf of the labor movement for specifically political demands. I think Natalie's right. I think one of the things that has really hurt this potential was, you know, in the fights over Clinton care and Obamacare, unions were basically out of the, they were outside of the, the route for these, these fights. And I think the healthcare question has still been something that unions do not feel like, the mainstream large unions do not feel like is the fight that they, they will take up in, in Washington. Instead, they feel like the fight they need to take up in Washington is exclusively the presidential campaigns, right? That's the thing that they're gonna mobilize the most amount of energy for. But I, I mean, I'm hopeful. I think that some, there are some real changes in how uh, unions are approaching the question. I mean, some conservative unions have been moving on this issue way faster than traditionally progressive unions, and those are for, for economic reasons, right? The trades are actually better on this issue than many of the public sector unions. Um, the public sector unions are afraid that Medicare for all might lessen the quality of care that uh, their members have. Their members often have very good health insurance. I'm thinking of AFSCME in particular. Um, and the, the private sector unions like IBW, I'm thinking of in particular, which had a huge fight over Medicare for all, um, IBW is moving in the, a left-wing direction on this issue, and that's, that's a, for those who don't know, that's the electricians union, which is often a very staunchly conservative union politically. Mm -hmm. uh, so you're seeing a sort of strange thing happen in the labor movement, but what we've yet to see, and the nurses have started this, but we've yet to see something like what the AFL-CIO did in the 60s, where they really said, we're, you know what, we're going to put, we're going to put a ton of resources into moving hundreds of thousands of people to go knock doors for this thing and go advocate for this thing. And I don't have a simple explanation for why that hasn't happened the way that it should happen. The force that is doing that to any degree is more the Democratic Socialists of America. Than yeah, yeah, DSA and the, the nurses. I mean, the nurses yeah. have launched a, a, a campaign to start really actually door knocking for, for Medicare for All. And you've all brought up several times the uh, the kind of pushback that Medicare for All efforts have gotten, or single payer efforts have gotten over the years. Uh, particularly from the AMA, Dustin, you talked about. Uh, when you mentioned there was that huge shift in public opinion in the 40s from, what was it, like 70? 70, 75% to 21%. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that, uh, I thought we were, uh, like, now that we're at something like 75% or whatever now, I'm like, okay, just onward to onward to freedom. Nope, that's not, not guaranteed. So can you talk a little bit, I mean, I don't think we've seen yet that kind of pushback. And obviously, if we, if and when we get closer, to uh, winning Medicare for all, or even to it just being a being something that is more seriously being discussed, like you know, real bill proposals that actually could have traction, actually could pass. <laughs> Obviously, we're going to see more of that, and I know there have been some rumblings of industry groups starting to, uh, you know, starting to warm up their engines on on uh, the you know how they're gonna fight back against uh, this. So can you all, any of you, uh, talk a little bit about how we can expect to see that pushback in the 21st century? I'll make a comment. Um, so yeah, I mean, they, they have started sort of sharpening their swords. Um, 
you know, there's a new lobbying group um, called Partnership for America's Healthcare Future, which you may have read about, uh, which basically is, I don't know what they exactly brand themselves as, but they're, but they're, they're running ads. Um, they're actually, they've started targeting, running targeted ads at a representative in Massachusetts who signed on to the Jayapal bill. Um, and they're funded by, their, their member groups include sort of all the big players, including um, Pharma, which is the pharmaceutical lobbying group, as well as AHIP, the American Health Insurance Plans, which is the primary um, um, health health insurer um, uh, lobby. It also does include um, the, uh, and I was, uh, I'm happy to see this. I mean, it does also include the American Medical Association as well as the American Hospital Association um, and a slew of other smaller groups. Um, so I think that, you know, in terms of thinking about how to, fo if we're going to focus for a minute on the sort of corporate healthcare interests, um, there's, I, I think it's very important to break them down into different categories, okay? So you're, the American insurers are going to fight this to the death with every resource they have, and there's nothing you can do to mitigate that or sideline them. Um, that is just going to be a full out you know, battle. Um, this is an existential war for them, and they are going to be relegated to minimal to zero role in the United States consequent to this, um, and how that, you know, and, and that's obviously something they're going to fight. The pharmaceutical industry um, is not, in and of itself, going to be, it is not going to be put out of business in any way, um, but this will give the government enormous leverage to bring down drug prices. So they obviously are going to be opposed to it, but it is not the existential kind of threat that it is to the uh, insurance companies. Um, I think we should really be very careful how we speak about, and I'm obviously coming from the provider side, um, but I think it's important to, be, to, to think carefully about how we orient ourselves to providers and hospitals and doctors, and, and certainly, I mean, I think nurses are maybe perhaps a separate category, but doctors and hospitals. Because the fact is, is that you don't need um, private insurers to run a healthcare system, but you do need hospitals, you do need doctors. And so, um, I, you know, I, am I, do I think that the American Medical Association is ever going to get on board with single payer? I think it's very unlikely. Um, but they certainly, um, you know, may take less of a, of a forward uh, attack if we view, the, if, if we describe this as a system in which, um, in many ways, um, would be better for doctors as well, all right? Hospitals, similarly, if your argument is that, you know, we're going to completely slash hospitals' current operating expenditures, um, and there's a leftist version of that because, you know, you really want to achieve these savings, we can cut in half what we pay hospitals. The reality is, is that American healthcare is very expensive, but it's not our, what we spend as a nation total on healthcare is not going to suddenly drastically drop year one of Medicare implementation, right? It's just not. Uh, you can call for it, but it's unrealistic. And the reality is, is there already are many hospitals closing. And if you were to suddenly take Bellevue and give it half the money that it has this year as compared to last year, it's going to cut services and create disruptions in care. And that's not a realistic thing to be calling for. So it may sound unradical in some ways, but I think that we should orient ourselves in the way we speak about this and in the way we plan the policy as a system in which, you know, hospitals will be okay, physicians will be okay, um, yes, the insurers are going to try to murder it, uh, and <laughs> that's the thing we have to deal with. That's my own personal kind of take on that issue. And on that last point, doctor, I think I've seen polling data recently yes. that shows that doctors are shifting on this. And issue. things have changed from the 1940s when the American Medical Association was a monolithic organization that essentially every doctor had to be a part of. You actually had to be a part of the, your county AMA group to even admit patients to the hospital. Right now, membership is quite low as a portion. It's also a much more diverse profession, obviously, both ideologically, in terms of gender, in terms of race, and those sorts of things. So I do think that, yes, there is 
polling data suggesting that a majority of physicians are on board. And um, you know, obviously in BNHP, one of the things that we do focus on is the medical profession. And I think that's an important part of this.